Hey guys, I don't know if you're like me, but I love Count the Dings and everything it has to offer. I just can't find everything I need. You know, I know about Cinephobe and I know about the mailbag. And I know about Bomb, but that's all we do, right? I mean, no, we do so much more. What? Yeah, absolutely. If you sign up, patreon.com slash count the dings, you'll find a plethora of other content, fresh content, extended content, the OG pod overflow, the Cinephobe cold opens that we've taken and made their own thing to live only there the re-watchingtons bomb and it's full Ooh. and unadulterated cut early drops of cinephobe episodes and so much more said the og pod now is it new or is it old mace i'm glad you asked that it is a new incarnation mm-hmm. of the old og pod oh. so it's me zach trey Waz, tom i love those guys just like we always were going back to the true hoop days mm-hmm. we're recreating that magic recapturing it and putting it back out we're talking hoops we're talking pop culture and most importantly we're talking for 40 minutes for free mm-hmm. but then another specific patreon exclusive segment for every one of those episodes funny enough about that og pod you're getting tom and trey on mondays you're getting me and waz aka zosny on wednesdays a means floating in between i'm a floater you never know when you're gonna get a mean in those so you gotta listen to them all and what if i'm not sure what maze looks like because i've always thought he's a fat man with a fedora he's got a weird voice how can i see for myself what this maze character actually looks like it's crazy you don't know the answer to this mm. because it's the cinephobe pod youtube page what the ct5s on the cinephobe pod youtube page you can look at all of us you can get all the og pods on youtube too at count the dings one on youtube at cinephobe pod on youtube patreon.com slash count the dings gets you everything all in one feed you can link it to your spotify and now enjoy the show Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Kevin Arnovitz. And I'm Tom Haverstrow. And soon you'll be hearing from Hershey Ash because it is Restaurant Wars. And our in-house restaurant consultant, Hershey Ash, joins us every year on our Restaurant Wars episode. Tom, I'm not even messing around with some question to ask you because we got a lot to talk about. It is our favorite episode of the season, every season. It is, it's one of the great sort of brands of competition television. That's right. And this one is a throwback. We're, we're doing the whole restaurant serving actual guests on this one. So no more like tasting menus only for the, for the top chef alumni and judges. Um, they got to be in this space and I can't wait to hear Hershey's. He actually, I think is in Houston. Um, I believe. And so he might have some, you know, hometown expertise here and some scouting reports on the Houston food scene. And in this particular episode, what we're seeing with the different elements. So Hershey, what's up, man? Welcome back to pack your knives. Hello. Long time no see speak. How's everyone doing? Very well. Good. Yeah, they followed me here, right? Actually, 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 think I technically followed them here. I think they started shooting before we moved. But yes, we're all in the same city. We're all here in Houston, which 
you know, I'll start with a bold call. I, I think at some point um, uh, it was probably tied at some point between Los Angeles and Houston for the most interesting food city in America, but Houston has taken over very much so. Interesting. Elaborate on that. I think the way to think about it is it is one of, if not the fastest growing immigrant city. So yes, there's a lot of people moving from within the United States, uh, but from, you know, without, from, from, from outside the United States, it is the fastest growing immigrant city. Obviously COVID had a bit of an impact on that. Um, so whenever you have immigrants, you have diversity, you have great food. So there's that. But there's also a secondary element, which a gentleman who, who worked for a, a couple of restaurants, a chef who worked for a couple of restaurants that I consulted to in Los Angeles many years ago, uh, he's in town and we, he's, he's a Los Angelino through and through, grew up in Compton, worked and lived most of his life in Los Angeles. And he was saying, and I agree, that it reminds almost of Los Angeles 2008, 2009, when before the rest of the, the country had woken up to the fact that that was now the best food city in the country. And there was, I don't know if you agree with this, Kevin, because Kevin is much more of a student of Los Angeles than myself, but it felt like at that time things mattered less so you could try more, right? So rent was cheaper. It was easier to find staff. There wasn't any pressure. No one was really famous. I mean, there was, but th these famous LA chefs now, no one had heard of them. And people could really, you know, to use an Australian saying, push the boat out and go crazy. And that's what it feels like now. There's all these young people doing stuff with like very, very, like there are people flying in fresh fish from Japan and then serving it in like food halls. It's ridiculously fun and exciting and interesting. I totally agree. I, I think one of the great factors in sort of underrated and then just monster food cities is rents. Like it's why Philadelphia became to me the most interesting of the Eastern Coast, the East Coast cities. Why? Because who can afford to open a place in Boston or New York or Washington? Hey, are you referring to... Kokoro, the my favorite food hall sushi place that flies it in daily in Houston. Yeah, that's it in Bravery Hill. Freaking love that place. Yeah, they're the best. They actually have a bunch of places here, and they're the perfect example. They've got this own little—I mean, you know—want of a better term. I hope I don't get upset if I say this. This little mafia of sort of young chefs, and they've got—they've got—I think they've got the third place open now. They're probably—I was trying to rent a place for a business around the corner, and then recently the real estate agent came back and said, "No, they've grabbed it too late." So they're building quite an empire, and it's like you said, you know. This is the time to do it. So I don't know it will be like a 10, 15 years, but it is that the low rent, easy access, not too much investment. All right. Well, let's get to Restaurant Wars. And uh, But I am, I am all in on Houston as well. I've had great meals there. Tom. Yeah. We go back. You said it. Like, go back to purism. I didn't like the whole you got to pitch it and then do it. Like, you know, Restaurant Wars requires very little manipulation. Just, just throw it out there pick knives and go. Yeah. And we got the draft, which is a random draft. There wasn't like a previous episode winner gets to pick the teams. And um, wait, before I get into that, I want to ask Hershey, did you watch this whole season or just this episode? Because I almost want you to like come in cold and not having watched this entire season. Oh, you should have told me that before I before I crammed in the whole season. You you, you binge watched the entire Top Chef before? Oh, no. I like that he's watched the season because he's got a little backstory now. Yeah, no, that's what it is. And, and, and I don't want to steal. We can talk about it soon, but I'm actually happy that I watch it because I think that this may be sneakily the best group of chefs that have. Oh, interesting. Yeah, this is good. Okay, so Nick Nick is the one who draws the first knife, okay? And he get first choice, and Jay is in the second choice. And we have a draft, an old-school schoolyard draft, which is really exciting. Um, and now that I know that you've watched this show, we can break down uh, the choices that Nick and Jay made, but... The thing that's interesting to me is according to topchefstats.com, which is the best analytics resource on Top Chef, it might be the only Top Chef analytics resource there is, but that doesn't under that doesn't overstate the idea of how good this is. The quality of this website is amazing because it breaks down um, our friend of the show, Lynn, has done an amazing job with the numbers here, and she lists the restaurant war stats. And Nick drawing the first knife is a kiss of death. Of the 13 teams that chose first in the draft, only three have won restaurant wars, which is equivalent of a 23% win percentage, which is equivalent, Kevin and Hershey. Hershey, your big NBA fam. That's an 18 win team over an 82 game season. So that is what we're dealing with here with Nick drawing the first draft pick and choosing his team first. I mean, Tom, I thought the draft was fascinating. We learned a little bit about the common perception of Buddha among yes. the chefs. 
we learned, I think, some perception about Evelyn. It was very, very interesting. Look, Nick taking DeMar, I'm fine with that. Like, that's that's a good pick. Um, Evelyn, you could argue, man. Like, she's kind of a doer. She kind of, you know, like, seems executive chef quality. But what was your interpretation of Buddha going, being passed on twice by each chef uh, drafter? That was fascinating. I mean, he was the fifth pick of the six chefs on the board. We had Damar, then Evelyn, then Ashley, Jackson, Buddha, and Luke. And I found it fascinating. I think Nick went with chemistry and culture in terms of like, I know these cuisines. I know they can work with me. And then, you know what? Buddha comes in. Okay. I got maybe the best chef on the board with my fifth pick. This is equivalent of like Isaiah Thomas in uh, going 60th in the draft. It's like, man, this is an incredible find, a diamond in the rough. And he's, he's, obviously super talented. But what's interesting to me is that I think they had issues with him being the second banana in the, in the, um, in the kitchen is that if Buddha isn't the leader, there might be some chemistry issues with him, uh, just his vision. And he's got a very, um, it seems like he's got a leadership personality, a, a kind of like, I, I know what I'm going to do and I'm going to do it. And I thought this episode showed that he's not all that he isn't. Um, he showed a lot of dynamic personality. He's willing to listen. He's willing to work in different ingredients, but I thought it was fascinating that he didn't go like one or two in this draft and Nick put together an amazing team. And I'm curious, Hershey, when you're designing a restaurant wars team to execute a restaurant in 24 hours, do you go with best talent available or do you go with best fit on your team or your vision that you have in your head? Yeah, I mean, you're going to have to go with best best fit, right? Because it doesn't matter how good the talent is. If, if, if everyone's clashing, it's going to come across and, and it's going to all fall apart. I think, um, you know, with uh, Buddha in particular, I think I have a very, very specific uh, set of expertise because I'm not just a restaurant consultant and we also share uh, a, a nationality. Buddha and I are both Australian. And so I, I think with him, one of the things to stand out, and I know you're like, ask all analogies, there's a very specific passive-aggressive thing that all Australians have that is quite often misunderstood. And I think for you guys, because you've been lucky, I'm sure, to have seen the public faces of Matthew Delvedova and Joe Inglis, but also the private faces of Joey and, and Deli. And I think what people would be surprised to know is that Deli and Joey are essentially the exact same person in very many ways. They have the exact same niggle kind of passive aggressive kind of like dig at you a bit just joey does it with a smile and delhi does it in that sort of flat face that he does it and i think with buddha that's what i've noticed even before this of that he you don't really realize what he's doing but he's kind of like digging at them off on purpose a lot and i can see it because i'm australian and i know he's not doing it by accident i know he's doing it on purpose and so i think that's kind of rub people the wrong way. And then also I think there's the second thing, which is he's very, very headstrong. I think he's come there to win. And uh, you know, he's he's that's that's he's come there to win. And I think that that's threatening for some people. Uh, understandably so. He's bossy, Tom. Yeah. He's sure. a little bossy. And people don't like Jay had absolutely no interest, probably would have taken Luke over him. I got the sense. Like she did not want any part of him. Um we actually saw uh Ashley and he kind of have some serious disagreement over her first dish. I thought he was right, but we'll get into that later. Well, think of with Buddha, he's also a scholar and he seems to have studied Top Chef and the advantages and disadvantages and the tendencies and the judging tendencies. And I find that to be really helpful on Restaurant Wars because there is a clear trend of, you know, uh, certain things you want to do in Restaurant Wars and things you don't want to do. Um, and so he's an asset on that level. And they almost use that as kind of like a, another negative almost is that he's, oh, he's... He's a know-it-all. He's a know-it-all. He's nerded out on Top Chef and he's a, he's, he's a bookworm on this stuff. So I thought that there might be some tension there with Buddha being the last pick of the team and also not fitting in that Southern cuisine, Southern culture of that, of Nick and Ashley and DeMar. But man, I got to tell you, Hershey and Kevin, like this was as flawless as I can remember of any team going is, is matriarch and DeMar. I feel like they all had their own ideas and it just works seamlessly right from the start. Yeah. It actually kind of surprised me because I thought, especially when they were working out the menu that he was going to kind of overwhelm 
too much. You know, he was kind of imparting too much. But I almost think I'm just I'm just realizing this now as I'm saying it. It's not in my notes, but it almost like his attitude was, okay, I'm going to do this first course. I'm going to nail it, and then also I'm going to be the host, which I don't have to like. It, there's not I can't be brought down in my I can't get kicked off by anyone else. Like if everything else falls apart. If anything, I have a chance to shine and then, yeah, my team will lose, but everyone else gets in up. So I think part of his attitude was nail my stuff and then kind of operate on my own, right? Because the person out the front of the house is almost like a separate entity to the folks in, in the kitchen. So I think uh, that probably was what was his plan. And I'm surprised they didn't run people the wrong way, but, yeah, I think they put together a really good team. I do also think they put together a team of, um, Evelyn aside, the folks probably who were the best who were the best cooks on the show, I think anyway, other than Evelyn, of course. Front of the house can be very risky. I mean, there are plenty of examples. I guess it's not risky if you know you can do it. Yeah, it's not risky if you grew up in a restaurant, right? So he's hospitality through and through. So there, there's high risk, high reward here. So the stats from topchefstats.com, the winning roles, the most common of the roles of the winner is front of house. Six winners were front of house, five were executive chef, five were line cook. And then there was one exception to everything, which was just the entire team. The eliminated roles, the most common eliminated role is executive chef seven times, front of house six times, line of cook, line cook six times. So it's basically an even breakdown, but it does slightly show that front of house is high risk, high reward strategy. And yeah, he backed himself going in. I mean, you can and you can see why. I mean, I don't I don't know if we're going in order. I don't want to jump ahead, but you can see why. Like he was, he's confident, and you know, he's a good. He's 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 hospital. I don't know what to say. His hospitality is real through and through. So, so let, let's just kind of lay it out because I, there was a, a clear contrast, right? I mean, Nick, Demar, Ashley, and Buddha have a restaurant called Matriarch. It is going to be uh, Southern cooking, almost paying homage to Southern moms. Uh, and sort of very homey, uh, Nick, Demar, and Ashley each, um, you know, have have a foot in, in sort of soul food tradition. Uh, Buddha does not, but I, I think it's one of the reasons Buddha, you know, chose front of the house and and sort of uh, as an expression of deference. Now it was interesting. We'll get to the salmon tartar versus uh, versus bitter lettuce salad. Um, and but on the other side is no nem. Nem is sort of Vietnamese um, sausage, and uh, Evelyn is obviously a, a huge kind of sort of Southeast Asian cooking. Um, and that's where that team went and they made a decision. And, and I, I know I, I'm dying to hear your kind of impression, Hershey. Major decision is tasting menu versus family style to direct contrasts in how to structure a meal. Um, and it seemed to prove pivotal, but it is, it was, I, at the start, I had no issue with the family style, though it tended to be an issue. Wanted, so, Hershey, when you're thinking about how to structure a menu, how to structure a meal in a restaurant, what are the considerations? I mean, family style can be a lot of fun. Um, it can be homey. Tasting menu can be obviously transcendent. It can also be very rigid. It's fun to order at times. Where do you kind of come down on that question? Okay, so that's a really good question because I have something – that I want to talk about, and that, and that kind of answers that. But before I do, did you think what they served was actually family style? Like I didn't. I don't think so. I no, it wasn't family style at all. Like I don't know what they're talking about. Nothing about it seemed family style to me. So family style is one dish, right? Like I don't. They just threw stuff on the table. I don't. I don't know what that was. Anyway, but uh, to answer your question, um, you know, I, I, th- I actually thought about this as we as we were watching. I was taking notes, and I, and I, like. Don't want to go too long into this to take too, too much of the time, but I thought, you know what, we've done a few of these now. I want to give you guys a little bit of a, a preamble for you, but also for, because I know a lot of different folks listen to this, so it might be helpful for them when making decisions like you just asked. We're actually in a very, very interesting uh, inflection point in restaurants and in experiential retail. Just just to be, I mean, by, by way of introduction, I do restaurant consulting and also do a little bit of experiential retail consulting. What does that mean, experiential retail? So, you know, it really is about understanding. Actually, this leads into it well. It's, it, it really it blows up really from massive brands like LVMH, but it's around understanding that um, folks just don't want to buy something that's a hard product. So, when retail started, and restaurant is a form of retail, when retail started, if you wanted to buy shoes, you went to a shoemaker, right? Uh, and then he had a few shoes and he shows it. And then retail came along and said, look, um, 
I can take his shoes, their shoes, these shoes, and you can all get to one shop and there'll be all the shoes to choose from. And that was great for about 150 years until something called the internet came along and said, I can give you all the shoes of the world and you can sit on your couch and your underpants and you, you can shop. It'll be great. So what, it, so, you know, that's why we're starting to see brick and mortar struggle. So one of the things that pushed back at it was folks, and, you know, it starts with, you know, credible credits to probably LVMH more than anyone, you know, um, started to work out, okay, well, we can't compete on the sort of efficiency of it. Let's compete on providing an experience. And it grew into this thing where we kind of look at it and say, okay, you have the product and that's the thing that you make the money off, right? And then you have this other product called the experience where you don't actually make or charge any money at all. Um, and then how do you combine the two? And in a really reductive way, the way to think about it is if you're in Nordstrom's or, or one of these kind of I don't know, malls, you know, like you, you walk around and you amber around and, and you're trying to close and then you're like, oh, I've got to pay. And it takes a second. You're looking around, where, where do I pay? And there's the... I never know where to pay. It's always, right? it's always a stressful experience. Yeah. Exactly. Because they've made the decision they want it to be this kind of wandering, ambling experience, right? That's experiential. But they need to they need to pay. So they have the desks around. Okay. That's what we talk about when we talk about the kind of the, the sort of zero-sum game between the two, which is they could get rid of those desks completely and then it would feel even more like a free-form free experience, right? But then you really wouldn't know where to pay. So you have to kind of make that decision and that's, that's the choice that informs experiential retail. And then those sort of choices, a lot of them have learned from things that we've learned in restaurants. So, you know, I consult on the retail end, but, but as, the, as well as the restaurant end, but as relates to what we're talking about here, what, what's interesting about this inflection point is it grew the internet at the same time as experience, this kind of need for experiential uh, retail grew at the same time that, this dominant cohort called the millennials, they value experiences over products. And so that's why we saw this great proliferation of restaurants, right? And restaurant and, and, and holidays and trips and all this stuff because they value the experience over the product. We're actually in this interesting inflection point, which, you know, I think it's probably been exacerbated by COVID, but I actually don't think it has anything to do with, with it, COVID per se. It would have just happened anyway, which is, we're now at this kind of zenith point where the millennial is the most important customer. They spend the most, they are the most. The next coming up is the Zoomer, the Gen Z or the Zoomers. We're at that inflection point. They're 23, uh, 24, the oldest of the Zoomers. You know, that's when we see them, you know, in restaurants, especially the newer, cooler restaurants. And it has never been clear to me at all that they valued experiences in the same way. They might value experiences more than, say, other generations, but they don't value them in the same way or as much as millennials. And I think that that has a very profound impact on the restaurants we're going to build going forward. That's not to say that you've got years to go still and the millennials are still very important, but the choices that we're making when we're laying out for a restaurant and a, and a, and a retail shop and, if, like, the compulsive, excessive decisions that are that – are, made by, by LVMH and even McKinsey now is changing their tune to sound to recognize that these experiences for, for, for Zoomers are, are not as valued. So when you're designing the restaurant, you know, come back to the, uh, we kind of went off, come all the way back. I think for me, the first choice you need to make is start thinking about the product again, almost equal to the experience. And in this case, it's easy. The product is the food and then the product and, and call the experience tasting menu because that goes very, very differently to what the family style is. And I'm not saying one is better or, or worse. And I'm not saying that, that in my opinion, the Zoomers would prefer one or the other. But what I would do is I would say, okay, where am I? So in their situation, easy. They're in Houston. It looked like they're in the building side of Post, actually. So I don't know when they shot there because it's been over a few months. But yeah, where were they? Is that a, is that a well-known like atrium space? It is now, but it wasn't when they shot it. It just opened. They spent years and years and years redoing it. It's the former sort of uh, a post office, for one better term. It's a huge place. I think on one episode they did this thing like it looked like on a garden rooftop. Do you remember that on that episode in this season? The night market. Do you remember the night market? Yeah. Okay. That's that. That's post. So that's after it was built. So I don't know. It's weird because that looks like it was construction going on there. So I don't quite understand the order of those things. But anyway, um, or maybe or maybe it just wasn't open up says it was completed. Anyway, um, so that's where they are. So they're in post. Okay, cool. So <laughs> we're in East uh, Houston. Okay, this is pretty hip, pretty cool. Um, and we're going to be getting uh, the judges. So they're... 
Gen Xers. And we're going to be getting a mix of people, including some friends of mine I've noticed in the crowd there. So you're going to be getting some folks like that. I think it's going to be unlikely that they're going to get any Zoomers there. Yeah, yeah. Right. If they opened a real restaurant there, they would, but it's unlikely there. For, 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 so I would focus for me on, on, on thinking about, okay, what do these, what do, what do, what do millennials want? And so I think that they would have preferred family stuff is what I think if I were to pick. The guests, not necessarily the judges, you're talking about the guests at the, these restaurant wars. At the restaurant wars, because I would expect them to be millennials and that sort of thing. So I think that if you would, the team that chose family style actually, I think, had an advantage. The fact that they didn't do family style, the fact that they messed it up, defeated the advantage. But I actually think, yeah, they had an advantage. Also, Hershey, I would imagine one of the things I was thinking is rather than having to plate everything, just in the hectic, hey, we just opened this place sort of way, isn't it when you get a four top just to dump a bunch of fucking food on it? I mean, you obviously still want to plate a family style dish. It should look hearty. There are things you want to do. It's not as easy as just throwing the Kung Pao chicken on a platter. But I imagine in terms of plating, it's also it's like a hack. I was shocked that, wait, why didn't more teams do this over the years? So, yes, I agree. And it's not even just that. Uh, it's also the fact that also you can get yourself out of trouble with pacing as well, right? So with the, with a tasting menu, you put the dish, let me clear it, and you set, let me do the other one. With this one, it can be like, oh, I'm getting backed up in this thing. Quick, push the second dish quickly, then I'll finish the first, but who cares? It's family style, and we'll get caught up here. You have flexibility that you don't have with the tasting menu. Right. And that played out with the, with the salmon dish, as you saw. I found that this team, the no-name team, just really off the bat seemed like they had a lot of dysfunction with Jackson taking the lead and then essentially saying like, Evelyn, you know how to do this and we should do Southeast Asian food. And then Luke and Jay were like, what? I I don't know how to do this kind of cooking. This is not for me. And they were overruled. It was essentially like, this is going to be Jackson's decision and Evelyn's kind of because he knows Evelyn can do it. But right off the bat, it felt like, there was a lot of discord in that discussion. That huddle up is one of my favorite moments on Top Chef is when the four, you know, restaurant wars teammates kind of huddle up and conceive of their menu and their whole aesthetic. It really didn't it really didn't seem like they got off on the right foot. I don't know. Like, I mean, I, I will say this. I mean, first of all, Jay absolutely executed her dish. She had one of the best dishes of the night. The, the snapper summer rolls of the Pisers. I'm not saying that she they didn't execute. I'm saying that huddle up showed that I don't think this was very much a democratic process about what they were going to do. Screw Luke. I, I'm so sick of this. I don't cook <laughs> that food. I don't know how to cook that food. I can't. I, I don't work with those flavors. I don't. Oh, shut up. You're a fucking professional chef. <laughs> Adapt. What? You don't know how to work with. Cr- I cook with curry for God's sakes. It's not difficult. Like it, it's it's a it's essentially a braise half the time. Like like just deal. Like it. it I'm sick of his. Oh, I'm sorry. There's no seaweed in this culture. Like you're not going to be able to function. Like stop <laughs> pouting. The issue is you're the inferior chef in the competition right now. The answer is get on the line and cook with the more talented people want you to cook. I mean, I'm just kind of over Luke and his. Oh, oh, they didn't make that at Noma. Oh well, uh, you know it, it's Copenhagen. Nothing grows. Didn't they do like a as after Mexico? They went to Sydney, so I'm sure they worked with those flavors there at Noma. But um, didn't they do that? Yeah, they did like a month in Sydney. But I think that um, also it's a competition, right? So like if he, you know, that's we're trying to weed out the weakest, right? Right. I'd see that. So that was very brutal Spurs way to, to, to kind of talk about things. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to sound like that there, but that's how it works. It is. So this menu, Evelyn does. Kevin, what did you think about this menu that they chose for No Nam? I liked it. Panipuri is, is, is a wonderful place to start. It's a like a bite that kind of, you know, texture, it kind of pops in your mouth. Um, now, Evelyn didn't execute it well because there was no liquid as, as um, I mean, who doesn't love like summer rolls? I mean, that, that's just a, it's a crowd pleaser. You have a curry, black cod wrapped in Napa cabbage. I mean, I, look, the barbecue Nam was arguably, I think it sounded like the best dish of the day in either team. Huge hit. Um, and then dessert, you know, it wasn't exceptional, but I, I don't, I mean, the menu to me worked really well. And I actually kind of, I was thinking I like Southeast Asian as a canvas because I think you can do smaller bites, bigger bites, works with fish. You can, I mean, you, you can do a lot of different things. It's a wonderfully rich culinary tapestry. And and I, I, I think it actually worked quite well as I did the brilliant menu that Matriarch came up with. 
Yeah, Hershey, what did you think about the the whole aesthetic of No Name and the um, the actual menu of it? Did you buy it? Uh, I thought actually doing family style with a more casual flair made a lot of sense. But of course, because they didn't want to do fine dining, they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to go in that direction, but they actually didn't execute that vision from from the family style standpoint. But I agree with Kevin. I thought the menu was really strong. A couple of things. First of all, uh, in my notes here, um, there was those two names are the worst names of all the episodes. <laughs> Montreal without the like what? Sorry, Matriarch without the H. What, what? Where are we? Is this like? Are we naming apps in two thousand and four? And like, as in like, you know. Tinder or whatever. And then the no name is, you know, no comment, awful name. Uh, in terms of the atmosphere, listen, they didn't just, they just, they didn't not only do family style in terms of the dish, in terms of the dishes, but family style is really fantastic for creating atmosphere because what you're trying to do is in any uh, restaurant is compress, right? Compress it in, get energy. That's why you want to pack the tables. So the great thing about family style is you got to all sit close together because the dish is in the middle and they didn't take advantage of that at all. In fact, obviously the chef's table is set up like that for the camera. I get it. But, you know, um, after this, after we finish, I'm actually going to go visit a friend who was there. I didn't realize until I watched the episode. So I'm going to ask him, you know, yeah. some questions. But but it was, um, you know, that so many opportunities really to kind of compress people in. It would have created a really fun electric atmosphere, which would have, I think, actually distracted um, a lot of the, the sort of negative feedback that they got because it would have felt fun and vibrant. And it just they just didn't do that. So to me, it just felt like I, don't, I, I still don't understand what they were doing family style. The food seemed okay. Um, nothing seemed, like you said, like, the, like, like Kevin was saying, the flavors are fine. I think Southeast Asian. Hello, listener. Guess who's back? It's me, Anthony Mays, your favorite butcher turned podcast producer. And I'm here to talk to you about ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the most convenient way to get high quality meat and seafood that you can trust delivered straight to your doorstep, free shipping, vacuum sealed packaging. It's ready to go right then. It's ready to pop in the freezer. You get exclusive member deals and a variety of high quality cuts at an amazing value. Going to the grocery store can be a huge pain. You're usually in a rush at an inconvenient time. You're waiting in line at the meat counter. You're taking a number. Maybe this place doesn't have a number. You're jostling with fellow customers. You're trying to get that ribeye that you want or that nice piece of salmon. Maybe the butcher that you're dealing with has a bad attitude or something. I don't know. That was never me. I promise. But maybe it happens. Butcher Box takes all of that out of the picture. You are always prepared with meat and seafood in the freezer, and you're not going to find quality for this price anywhere else other than ButcherBox. So sign up at butcherbox.com dings, D-I-N-G-S, and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash dings and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S, to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. I had a lot of opportunity to do a lot of stuff. It seemed fine. I didn't really understand exactly how the last dish was Southeast Asian, but what do I know? <laughs> Good point. Good point. Yep. It was also plated. I don't know if anyone noticed that. Like the last dish was on the individual plates. So the, again, the opposite of a family style. But I think, uh, you know, I, it seemed okay. But it, uh, you know, I, I, it seemed enjoyable enough. I, I thought, I mean, I don't know if we're jumping ahead too soon, but I thought the food uh, on the other side, even though like somehow felt more cohesive, you know, in a way to me. I mean, it was a master class and everything. I mean, they, they said and made a big deal about it, that this was possibly, and, and Tom, you said it, the most successful restaurant in the history of restaurant wars. I mean, you know, Buddha does his snacks, which is a great way to kind of incorporate his creativity. You know, it, it, it just, he, he's wonderful at these little morsels. Remember kind of the strawberry, uh, what was that, Tom? The, the, the strawberry locks and or bagel and, and that thing. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, he's just wonderful at the little flourishes. And snacks is a wonderful way to kind of display sort of whimsy. And he's really great at whimsy. And then you get into the salmon tartare. That, that was an interesting debate. And, and, and Hershey and Tom, I want to hear your opinion. The second course was a salmon tartare with fennel and peaches. That seemed to be a real bone of contention. Um, Ashley initially wanted to do a bitter lettuce salad. 
And basically, Buddha said, that's lame. Boring. Boring. Yeah. <laughs> and, and by the way, it's boring. Haven't you ever watched this show? I mean, nobody- <laughs> I've watched like, Top Chef. They don't like that shit. Yeah. They don't like that shit, right? And and, and <laughs> I thought it was a fascinating- Now, look, I don't really understand where, where raw salmon fits into uh, Southern culinary tradition um, as a Southerner, but but uh, and I love salmon tartare, uh, but I think I got to say, like, he seemed a little- overly officious about it but i don't disagree i don't know who wants a bit i mean look who wants a bitter lettuce salad you got you got five bites of the apple here for restaurant wars bitter lettuce salad really you know there is i guess they sang it actually there's a line from the simpsons that i repeat all the time i've spent my whole life living it and it is you don't win friends with salad and it just perfectly applies here. You do not win friends with salad. And he was right to shut it down. I, and I also, I mean, I, that whole dish was weird to me. First of all, I mean, you, you know the South better than I, fair enough. But I have lived in the South, I guess, for four, five, what, no, like six, seven years now. I, 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 do, I what, there's what, salmon. And then I guess I had peaches, so I guess, Georgia. The, 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 other thing, the other thing I found interesting, and I did watch the episode with uh, my delightful girlfriend who, you know, uh, grew up in the same city as Kevin and, and went to UGA, go dogs, as she likes to say. <laughs> I was like, carrot cake is the southern, I don't, how is carrot cake southern? Am I missing something? That That is new. I mean, I, I thought carrot cake was just kind of universal. I didn't realize it had its origins in the south and it might not. We'll have to do a little fact checking there. Um, as somebody who will claim, you know, the south as you know, I will credit anything to the South that it, it, it warrants. I never knew that carrot cake was a Southern thing. I'll do a little research on this. I had it in Connecticut. It's Connecticut is very far from the South, and I had it there. Oh, here we are. The origins of carrot cake are disputed. Oh, good. There's an English recipe for a pudding and carrot root in 1591. In volume two of... It's all British stuff. It's not anything about the South. The former chef of Louis Sixteenth now claims a recipe and then according to the culinary history of switzerland <laughs> it's not i don't understand how it's not and it was revived the popularity of carrot cake was revived in the uk because of rationing during the second World war apparently um now i'm not vouching for any of these sources but i don't see anything about the american south in the history of the carrot cake however i don't care if it was that good it doesn't matter yeah, 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 i mean enough. That's its right. origins can be, you know, whatever. But anyway, the way you've done that, you could have done if you wanted to keep it thematically instead of the salmon tartare. Why not just do an oyster with some sort of southern flair with Tabasco or, you know, just do kind of a – I think you can do that if you want to work in raw seafood there. That would be, to me, the logical southern play. What's clear is that she won despite that dish. She won on the basis of that gumbo. Yeah, the green gumbo. That's interesting because I kind of felt she wasn't the strongest on the team. If I'm going to be honest, and it's hard for us to see because we just see what they edit, but I actually didn't see it that way. Um, and the gumbo could have been spectacular, you know. And you know, as as a former resident of of New Orleans, you know, anything that shines a light on Leah Chase on Dookie Chase is, is something that I support. But um, yeah, I don't know if she was the strongest on that team. It was actually when we watched it uh, last night, we were both surprised. So we thought it would. We we yeah. And I thought there was actually a bit of a screw-up there from her with, um, you know, the pacing seemed to be the only error they had there. And I thought they would get to it, but they didn't because she said, oh, Tom's glaring at me now. And he was glaring at you for the same reason that I was shouting at the television because he was in his mind saying what I was shouting, which was get off the paths. Like the guy is drowning, get off the paths. There's Ten, five, ten tables here. You're just standing around, re-staring at tickets. Go and help him play it up, especially considering it's a dish. So, I'm actually kind of surprised the way it played out. The gumbo must have been pretty spectacular for it to, to, to overcome. But it, I, I thought the three other gentlemen outdid her. If I'm going to be honest. Well, I, I thought Buddha was the natural there to win. Uh, Ashley won. Um, Buddha just because he nailed front of the house, and they couldn't they couldn't shower enough praise on his management of the house. He had his snacks, which were just an opening rave. Um, I just assumed he was going to win. Now, obviously, you could argue that, hey, if this is the best restaurant, most successful restaurant world of all time, you give it to the exec chef um, who you know, presumably conceived much more of the concept and the menu than Buddha did. But I agree with Hershey here is that I kind of felt like they gave her 
the benefit of the doubt in terms of matriarch. She's the only woman on the team. And she felt like, you know, this was, um, she was able to execute those dishes, but she was behind. She was behind. Like there was no flaw from Buddha. There was no flaw from Nick and Damar is that I could tell. Um, and so I, I was a little confused and they're both on my team, Buddha and Ashley. So I'm not going to complain too much, but I, I agree with, with Hershey's that I thought Buddha and you, you agreed with this too. I think I thought Buddha was going to win this one and it just didn't, it didn't work out that way. So you feel like it was a narrative win? Yes. Do you think it was like a Carl Malone MVP situation? It was like, listen, we can't just keep it short. <laughs> we can't just keep it short in all of these. You reckon that's what it was? I think it was a Carl Malone uh, MVP. They're tired of watching Buddha win. Quite possibly. A Derrick Rose MVP. Yeah, there you go. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that one too. Wow. Tom litigated that as well as anybody in the press that year. <laughs> I was so angry at that. It was so stupid. Tom was, was a so great dumb. litigator was, on that one. Oh, awful. And, and in retrospect, like he was really cool of a candidate and like there's just all narrative. And but I remember getting into it with Rick Buecher about that, but I'm sorry. I digress. I, th- I think there's another person who's probably litigated it better over the years. <clears throat> Certain dude who plays in Los Angeles at the moment. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> but putting him aside than him. So let me ask you guys about the other team. So Jackson, obviously, we're kind of burying one of the leads here. One of the most uh, highest performing chefs of the season. We've seen this before, Tom. We have seen front of the house just do – remember, um, Nini was was a victim of this. She was cooking her ass off, gets a sign front of the house. In this case, Jackson claimed it and then just – flames out crash and burn and by the way i I mean and and i want to get hershey on this in a second just to the naked eye how do you not do the introduction of the restaurant what about (sighs) the stupid placard you don't introduce the dishes he doesn't want to hover like like that that was the thing oh i don't want to hover hover you barely acknowledge them right like he was then explicitly told by evelyn to engage them and then leaves them without direction for a complicated dish and furthermore as Hershey says, as Tom, you and I often say, this is a competition show. I'm not going to tell, say, I would never like, ign- I would ignore the non-voting judges who are the diners. But like, I'm sorry. Oh, we're going to treat everybody the same. No, no, you nope. don't. You don't. Nope. You don't. No, no, you don't. It, but it is like, I didn't want to hover. You didn't even forget hovering. <laughs> How about acknowledge them? Anyway, yeah. I wanted to get your, I mean, Hershey, you are a master at the front of the house. I have seen you work the front of the house. Um, it is a charm offensive. It is, it is a portrait of competence. It's, you know, um, tell me, give me your full, you know, review of Jackson here as, as front of the house. Can we swear? Are we allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah. My, my sister doesn't like it all that much, but my, also my niece <laughs> and nephew are getting older. So like, yeah. I, I'm sorry, my 12 year old niece is not, she, I'm sure is hearing plenty of that at her London school. Lucky is the one thing. Uh, dude, shut the bed. Like there's really no other way to describe it. And it's interesting because a word you just used, the key to that sort of thing is confidence. And he doesn't seem shot on confidence to me. So I don't really know what it was. And I actually don't buy the, I didn't want to hover excuse because, uh, I mean, in the few minutes we saw and edited down, we looked hovering over tables with that manic laugh. So, I, you know, I, I don't know why that is better. Yeah, he looked very uncomfortable throughout the whole thing. I don't understand the thought process behind the, we're going to write something well, we're going to have welcome judges on the table. That's weird. You can just say, how do we do it? Let's get this old piece of paper folded up and someone in handwriting that looks like my handwriting, which is to say terrible handwriting. I know that looks like a a second grader wrote it. Right? (laughs) What is happening? Uh, I don't understand it. absolutely bizarre. I really don't have an explanation for it. I think he may have, I don't know, overthought things by saying I'm not going to hover, possibly. But actually just, I don't don't have a good explanation for what happened because he doesn't seem to be lacking on confidence. He volunteered a position so he wanted to do it. The not explaining of the dishes is odd to me. Um, You know, and so I'm someone who thinks, you know, you shouldn't explain, you should explain as little as possible. But in this case, it was family style ostensibly. So you should be, you know, explaining. Yeah, it felt like... I, I honestly don't have an explanation for it. What I will say is if anyone, you know, works in restaurants or is thinking of opening a restaurant or something like that and you're watching it, I mean, it's a really easy, it's very hard when you're inside something 
uh, to kind of step outside yourself and watch. So I would say to you like this, take this as a great lesson of what it looks like, the gap between hovering and not being present. And it's a lot bigger than you think. God bless Gail. Because she was so nice about it, was like, "Hey, um, just question. Uh, could you introduce these dishes for for us? Oh, oh, and by the way, um, what was the idea behind this? Like, she was as politely as she could possibly say, "Hey, where the f are you? Like, why are you running away from us?" And to me, it's like what the what the Raptors did with Joel Embiid the other night, which is like the one guy you had to guard was Joel Embiid on that final play, and he broke out and got wide open and hit the three pointer. How is that not priority number one? Jackson, priority number one is wow the judges. Take care of the judges. This isn't a voting thing. As far as I could tell, there was not a, a voting by the whole the whole room of, of diners. This is just focus on the judges and execute that. Everything else will fall into place. And it seemed almost like you said, Hershey, that he, he almost caught up in his own head about it. He overthought it and don't hover over them because there are other diners. Don't hover, don't hover. And it just became this thing that he could not do, which is – even pay one iota of attention on the judges. And that's pretty much sent it home. Also, the food wasn't great. The fact that you couldn't cut into the dessert and you had to do it with a bite. Um, it didn't work as a family style. It seemed, um, it seemed kind of elementary, the, the, the conception of the dish. It didn't really work. I have it in my notes here is deserves to go home 100%, but is he too good on this show? I thought for sure he deserved to go home. I thought that it was amazing to watch on this show that the judges weren't going to take into account his whole history on the show and that fact that he had won five out of the last six challenges or been in the top five, top three and five out of the last six challenges. And they went purely based on what was in front of them on that night. And they sent a moment, I think justifiably so, Kevin. I mean, yeah, I, I don't disagree. Can I float a conspiracy? And before I do, just quickly, with the dessert, which looked mediocre, but it's fine. But ironically, if you would have put it all on one plate and the finger thing, you know, you have to pick it up, that actually would have made it the only family style dish, right? Because like picking it up and eating it with your hands actually is family style. Sure. Here's my conspiracy theory. That they didn't know the judges or the producers perhaps about his, and it's very unfortunate. Like I can't, I, I mean, it, I really did binge all the episodes and I keep like saying to, to, to Sarah, my better half, that oh, I can't imagine what that'd be like losing your taste for, for anyone in our industry. It's just horrifying. Obviously, there are way bigger victims of COVID. I'm not suggesting that. But it's just, you know, one incredibly tough thing to face. And I think perhaps he didn't tell anyone, well, he certainly hadn't told his, his fellow competitors until we saw that. But I don't think he told anyone on the show. And I think that is my conspiracy theory. I think they probably just found out. And I think that it raises a lot of questions about what we, so people like myself and Tom, for example, believe if you could really win a cooking show without being able to taste. It really calls into question the thing that we shout at chefs, which is taste your food, mate. Yes. So, like, I don't know if there's something there in that. I don't know if Tom's like, because that would be the story, right? If he wins, let's say he comes back and he wins, the story is going to be, oh, my God, you don't need a taste to win this show. That's not a good story. I'm just telling you. Wow. So I don't know if that's the conspiracy, maybe. I don't know. Very compelling. Very compelling. So so in your tinfoil hat oh, on theory okay. is that they had to send him home as a matter of they have to make an example out of a chef who doesn't taste his own food. We can't have a, a chef who doesn't taste his own food win this cooking competition. Yeah, I don't make examples the right word. I think also they're trying to avoid having two episodes ending, two seasons ending controversy. Gotcha. And I'll just gotcha. Leave it, leave it at that. I do want to kind of discuss one of, one of the few things that troubles me about Restaurant Wars, and I wouldn't even say trouble, but there's a structural issue with Restaurant Wars. And Tom, you said it with the stats, which is who are we kidding? If you're not an exec chef, it's really a four-person competition, right? I mean if you want to be real about it, the, the two line cooks yep. never go home. They never win and they never go home. It's, it's the opposite of win or go home. It's don't win and don't go home. Yep. Right. And and so you get a contestant like Luke. Right. And I know I've been bagging on him all day. All right. But like he's over one in his dish. You know, he, he then tries to slough it off on on Jackson for telling him he need more salt instead of less salt. Now, by the way, is the implication there that he thought Jackson was sabotaging him? Yes. OK. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting implication. Yep. But I don't think it's true. But 
I just kind of – that's the one structural issue I have with Restaurant Wars is like it doesn't matter how bad your one dish is. The exec chef will pay for it or the front of the house person will pay for it and you get to skate. I mean honestly, other than just sort of a, a confidence thing or, or, or hey, I'm here, go big or go home and we've seen plenty of talented chefs do that. I'm running for line cook on this episode because it's yeah. a free pass. It's a free pass. I should have mentioned that line cook has six eliminations in top chef, but there's two line cooks on every episode. So half of that. So you basically have three eliminated line cooks per line cook, and then six for front of house and seven for executive chef. Absolutely spot on. Kevin is that you're basically getting a free pass. If you're a line cook, I mean, you got to make dog food to go home. Luke did half a dish. Well, here's my counterpoint. I think you, the way looking at it, you know, from a rational point of view, I think it's a smart play, but you're discounting one factor, and that is that all of them are professional you know, chefs, hospitality people. It's The example would be try telling Steph not to take the free throws or the last shot. Like, like, good luck, you know? So I think you can skate off in the background if you like, but I just think the way how we're brought up, you know, in the industry is, and it's to a fault, this is actually a bad thing, it's don't really trust anyone else to do the job as well as you are able to do it yourself. Now, that's to a fault. It goes too far sometimes. And so I understand what you're saying that would be the smart play, but I'm actually kind of surprised we don't see more sort of jockeying to be the lead kind of person. And 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 when Buddha did what he did, it didn't surprise me at all because, like, I, you know, knowing his background, knowing the places he's worked, knowing some of the people well that he's worked for, um, you know, it doesn't surprise me at all. And I think that that will show up maybe later in the competition. Right? You get double, you get credit for it later. Now that I've thought about it, I feel like Buddha putting out the first dish while doing front of house is is kind of a genius move. Because what we've seen on on Restaurant Wars is always an advantage for serving first. Yes. We we did Restaurant Wars back at uh, in Louisville in Lexington, Kentucky, and we got the third restaurant and it was so super backed up and the judges, um, you know, it got super, super behind. And I feel like the, actually, the, the the restaurant we went to was first. They got it all the way done, but the judges just kept getting backed up and backed up. Whereas Buddha not only gets the first serving, he gets the first course of the first serving. And so, man, they they just landed that perfectly in TopChefStats.com. Of the ones that um, that won, or sorry, of the what, restaurant war teams that served first, of the seventeen teams that served first. 12 of those 17 actually ended up winning that restaurant war. So you want to serve first. He got the first serving of it. And I was trying to think in my head, Buddha or Jackson, who would I want as front of house? And Jackson said that he had done front of house for his own restaurant in LA. And so he knows this, the back of his hand. Um, but he just clearly blew it as, as the front of the house and just a few different ways. Another thing I had here, a mistake that he made was he told the judges you know, he introduced some of the dishes you know, very late in that. And then he said, um, hope it's not too much food. And Padma was like, wait, we're, we're professionals. Like we're judges. What do you mean too much food? And I was like, what is Jackson doing? Like, what is going on here? It was really weird. And it's just such a shame. And because I, I do want to talk about it. And Hershey, you've watched the season. He's been just a fantastic chef all season. Yeah, I think he's been great. Had some of those, those what was that, that? I guess was it barbecue ravioli, right? The brisket in 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 the filled pasta. Yep, that was very clever. Yeah, I'm surprised. I'm actually I'm, along the lines of what Tom was just saying. Like starting off the episode, I would not have expected him to perform as fully as he did it from the house. Not not even just for the reason, you know, just of the personality of him that we've seen. I don't know. I don't know what to say. Like I don't know what happened. Yeah, but you know, it, it's a bizarre thing. Speaking about the amount of food, I, I did take a note. I guess it didn't come up. I don't think Matriarch did enough food. I actually thought it was not enough food. And I actually thought as we were watching and I was like, oh, because I thought the second team performed well, that it would actually come up, that it was a criticism. I think that was not enough food. I mean, just to give you a, a context, because Tom and I went to Restaurant Wars, let's put it this way. We had a lovely meal at our Restaurant War visit. Was it Northeast or something? Like Northeast that? or whatever it was. And, and within yeah. 20 minutes, we were just downing chips <laughs> in a bus because we yeah. were starving like i do think it's sort of it, maybe it's a question of they have that price limit on what they can buy at the whole foods but they clearly it, it is a convention of 
of uh, restaurant wars that the plates will be relatively small. And I imagine that's a cost thing. Economy sized, yeah. But if it's a cost thing, they should be docked on, right? Because that's how we run restaurants. You know, the food cost is, that's it. That's the whole, food and labor cost. So, I mean, I think perhaps they should be docked on, but you, you may be right. They may be told, you know, to, and then also maybe the judges have to eat twice. And they like if it's more for that reason, I don't know. But it did feel like not enough food to me. I agree. I want to ask you guys, we haven't talked about him at all, really, is Damar. Um, Damar coming out with Ashley to the table and having the the moment with the judges and really star move by him. Yes. He also said that he was a little terrified um, because of his carrot cake wasn't really cooked properly because there, there's a malfunction. And we've talked about this, Kevin, on this show before, is it really sucks when there's like a, a technological glitch on one of the appliances that you're using in the kitchen. And I always found that that is so unfair on this show is that like, oh, the thermometer was incorrect. It was a broken thermometer that DeMar could have gone down in a, in a pot, in a, in a just, a, tor- a terrible uh, avalanche of bad luck with the fact that the thermometer wasn't accurate, but he bounces back and he cuts around the the uh, uncooked parts of that carrot cake and it works out. And I think Damar, when he says he's terrified and he's cool as a cucumber, I love this guy. He is so stable and so just cool. Um, he never seems to be flinched by any anything that's thrown his way. I think he's got real dark horse potential on this on this um, season of of Houston, of Houston Top Chef because it really seems like everything they throw at his way, he's fine. He's really good, and I just I don't know if if there were odds, if there were betting odds by Vegas on who's going to win Top Chef, he might not be the favorite, but I think he might have the most value. He is a cool cucumber. He's very self possessed, and I think his food's really 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 good. I think you know it's hard when you watch a show you can't taste, so we try and imagine flavors. Um, and that's what the bit of lettuce situation sounded weird. And even just, and they were going to put the tartar. On. I don't know what was happening there with that plant. And so when you think about flavors, you know, it kind of seems confusing. But his flavors through all the episodes I've watched are just, just like a, I don't know, a masterclass in restraint and, and, and fabulous combinations. I think he's doing really great. Hershey, when you watched this episode, did you think this was one of the best restaurant wars you've seen? Like this, this uh, matriarch, I mean, forget the name if you didn't like the name, but in terms of the execution, when you watched this, did you say, wow, I mean, that was as good as a restaurant wars squad that I've ever seen? Putting aside the food that I couldn't taste the food, no, I didn't really. It didn't, it, nothing, I mean, nothing about it, like it seemed great. It just didn't seem that stand out to me. Like I kept thinking about as going through, like that's not enough food. I kept like sitting in my head. Um, I thought Buddha did an excellent job in, in sort of creating vibe and atmosphere. Homer. I think along the lines, would you say Homer? Yeah, I said Homer, uh, Australian, you Aussie. He's from Queensland, so it's a different part of the country. But <laughs> I will say, I think along the lines, because I was waiting for Kevin to say it, he didn't say it, but along the lines of what you said about um, that possibly sometimes maybe on restaurant walls, they could maybe possibly a producer sabotage people, possibly maybe, along the lines of equipment breaking down. Oh, the houseboat. It was the houseboat, right? Where the electricity went out on the houseboat. The fixes in. <laughs> Wasn't it an oven went off another season as well? I think normally they give them waiters who are not waiters as well. And that that's my, that I think kind of makes it more interesting. But it seemed like, I mean, it's hard to tell with masks, but I feel like I recognize some of the faces from, from, from restaurants here in town. So, wow. Yeah. They gave them proper wages, that's for sure. Closing thoughts. I mean, we didn't talk about Evelyn as exec chef or much of the kind of back of the house on No Nem. Just want to get kind of any closing thoughts about generally just where they lost it. I will say this in terms of their, I wish they would have nailed it a little better because in terms of, you know, what we started talking about at the beginning of this podcast, which is what Houston is. Houston is a fast-growing immigrant city, but particularly Asian immigration and particularly Southeast Asian immigration. And so it would have been a really excellent opportunity. I think it was arguably more of a Houston restaurant to me than, than the other one. It really chance to show people how important the Southeast Asian community is to this city. So, you know, I think I was disappointed on that level. I know um, <clears throat> that hasn't stopped her from, from doing, doing you know, these, these types of food around town still now. Um, so, you know, I think I was disappointed on that level. I think the better team won for sure. And it was easy to see. And I think it also shows the importance of how front of house is arguably more important than back of house, even on a condition. Because I think if you would have taken those two teams 
and swapped, uh, uh, you know, the two front of house gentlemen, I think it would have been a much closer competition. Arguably, the second team made one. So I think that that shows to me the point of difference. You know, I think having Buddha going around and making it more a famous style and fun, that might have assuaged some of the issues that they had. So I think, you know, my parting last thoughts are don't get carried away with what's going on in the back of the house. A good front of the house can fix anything. Well, I want to know who do you think is going to win Top Chef Houston? I think Buddha wins because I think Australians win absolutely every competition we get into. <laughs> I think that's a rule. Oh, no, no, the Brooklyn Nets have Patty Mills. Yeah, so we'll see if that's going to – Who just won hour, an hour ago won Sportsmanship Player of the Year. Oh, did he? Oh, good for him. That's great. I didn't know that. Wow, that's good. Yeah, Buddha, Buddha seems like the favorite in my book too. Yeah. So I think if I were to pick a winner, I would probably want to pick the Australian, so I'm going to go with Buddha. But, you know, I think Demar's coming up on him. So, you know, I think that – it's probably going to be between those two. I think, you know, and it could be wrong, but I think, I think Tamar might just overtake right at the end. I just feel like there's a little bit more, I don't know, I don't know what the right word is. There's a little bit more of a, a warmth to his food. Buddha's food is excellent. It's like technically perfect and it, it really looks really interesting. But in, this is going to sound weird. No matter how progressive his food is, somehow I think Tamar's food seems more progressive to me in the way to direction that the industry is heading. That's interesting. I think Demar's a strong second. Evelyn has had her moments. I think she's incredibly creative. But yeah, Buddha, I think it's Buddha's competition to lose right now. And uh, we'll see, you know, Tom, Jackson could come work his way back through yep. uh, Last Chance. So I, I wouldn't, it's happened before. We um, we saw it, uh, Joe Flam was a graduate of uh, Last Chance. That's right. That's right. And, and front of house. So you have a fairly good comp for, for Joe Flam. If you haven't listened to la last week's episode, I know everyone probably listens to everything. If you're watch listening to the show, you're listening to every single recap, but really fun conversation with Joe Flam, um, up in Chicago. And yeah, I, Hershey, thank you for joining us. We're going to break down some last chance kitchen here for a sec, but, um, really, really great to have you on. And yeah. Uh, if you have anything that you're working on or restaurants that you want people to go to in Houston, please give them a shout. No, nothing at all. We might be doing um, rolling out some places in Los Angeles for a client uh, maybe towards the end of the year, but, but we'll see. But yeah, if, uh, nothing nothing really to shout out. If folks want to talk about experiential retail or restaurants, you know, just 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 hit me up, hersheyash.com. Reach out. Awesome. Hershey, thank you as always. Last Chance continues. Sarah has put together a nice little run. She faced Joe and the competition was stuff something. <laughs> yeah, stuff something. Joe did not stuff her quail very well on the um, elimination challenge and she has to stuff something, anything. And Tom is just the king of the father, the, the dad jokes here once again. Uh, but, you know, Sarah, Sarah decides to bite off more than she can chew with this um, with, the uh, you know, this, this dumpling, this stuff dumpling with, with tons of stuff going on. But on the other side, Joe basically nibbled on something and it was way too small of a thing. And she chewed it and ate it and then just sat there waiting for Sarah to finish and watched her plate for a minute. Cause she had so much time left. She did, um, essentially a, a, a stuffed squash, uh, Caponetta with it was just a kind of a meh dish and Tom actually liked it um but she she hangs on and gets that you know endorsement from Tom but it wasn't enough the flavors weren't there um it just seemed just pretty uh, not cooked well enough and Sarah continues on and Joe goes to the peanut gallery and I will note here Peanut Gallery only has Monique there right now, which means the other chefs are gone. I don't know, Kevin. This is very odd to watch. Um, you know, Sam's not there. Our favorite Sam is not there. Stephanie's not there. Robert's not there. They all just kind of went home, and I don't really know what happened there. Yeah, different conversation for a different day. Obviously, the problem is they're throwing people back into the main competition too regularly and too quickly. Yeah. And that's part of it. Even Sarah, who didn't actually win, came in basically second to go back into the competition. I, it's just I, – I think they're watering down LCK as a competitive measure. I still think it's fun television. Yeah. And I do like that Tom rewards boldness, right? Yeah. Sarah continues to roll. She will have plenty of competition with Jackson next week. Any other closing thoughts, Tom? We now are getting down to it. Restaurant Wars is sort of the, the all-star break, right? Now, now we're getting serious. Except for Luke. 
right? Except for Luke, he's he's sticking around. Well, no, there's always there's always someone who is sort of plotted along. Luke, I, I think, is not long for this competition. Kevin, you have 121 points. I have 81. You've got a 40 point lead, almost insurmountable. I would I would posit. I had a, a nice little comeback week with Ashley taking the victory and Buddha uh, doing as well as he did. But um, the big headline here is that Jackson confesses that he has no taste, no sense of smell, and and he goes home. A very surprising exit for Jackson, but he might as well um, be the second favorite, even though he's in Last Chance Kitchen. I think he, if he gets back into the competition, he's I shown enough so. competence on this show that he's going to be right there at the very end. So we'll see what happens in Last Chance Kitchen with Sarah. Um, but that's about it. Restaurant Wars is in the past, and now we're making the turn to the home stretch. Onward. For Tom Haberstroh, for Hershey Ash, who was pleasant enough to join us, this is Kevin Arnovitz, and this is Pack Your Knives. Pack Your Knives.